and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks for tuning in to this episode. We're continuing our series of interviews with the candidates for New York City Council Speaker. This is a race among roughly seven candidates who will be among the 51 members of the New York City Council come January when the new class of council members and the rest of city government is seated. The council members will vote for one of their own to be their legislative leader, the speaker, and a position that comes with immense power and a lot of responsibility, and again is voted on by the members of the city council. But those candidates for council, including my guest today, have been making the rounds, talking to people in the media, uh, appearing on this podcast, uh, and also starting to appear in a variety of forums uh, in front of different uh, interest and advocacy groups to talk about their priorities, their plans, how they might lead the council, and so on. There are the 51 members of the council, but there's also a lot of other players in the mix from powerful labor unions to members of Congress, the county party leaders. There's the Republican caucus and conference of the city council, which is now growing uh, in light of the recent elections that the city just held. There's Mayor-elect Eric Adams, of course, former speakers of the city council, and more. Lots of people jockeying, lots of influence happening. Um, but there's also really the nuts and bolts of this eternal internal race are relationship building, coalition building. And as you've heard, if you've listened to any of the other discussions on the podcast here with some of the candidates for city council speaker, the different candidates have, you know, different pitches that they've said they're making to their colleagues about why they should be the legislative leader, their vision for how they'd approach the job of speaker and its many responsibilities leading the legislative body. And there's a lot of room for putting your own imprint on the role in the city. So I've been talking with the candidates for speaker, including my guest today. I'll be joined in just a second by city council member Diana Ayala who's a Democrat representing the 8th City Council District, a very interesting district that includes East Harlem, but also parts of the South Bronx. It's one of the few council districts that stretches two boroughs. A lot to talk about here with Diana Ayala in just a second. If you've missed any recent episodes of the podcast, I have been talking, as I said, with a number of the candidates for City Council speaker about a mix of their government work and their bid to become the speaker, but also in recent weeks, we've spoken with public advocate Jamani Williams right before he jumped into the governor's race. A very interesting conversation there with Jamani Williams about his priorities, his relationship with mayor-elect Eric Adams. And he did a lot of previewing of his gubernatorial campaign right before he officially jumped into the race. I've also spoken in recent weeks with uh, city council member Idanis Rodriguez, who is term limited out of the council seems likely to possibly work in the Eric Adams administration. Talked with him about a variety of things. City council member Eric Ulrich as well has been on the podcast. Another city council member who's termed out and may wind up in the Adams administration. Uh, both of those council members endorsing Eric Adams in the race for mayor. So that's just a sample of some of the recent episodes. Find them all at Max Politics, wherever you get your podcasts. We also have them all at the Gotham Gazette website. And going back to August and September and October, I also had some really interesting conversations with people at the state level, uh, State Comptroller Tom DiNapoli, Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins, and others about the transition from Governor Andrew Cuomo to Governor Kathy Hochul and what's happening in state government. So you can find those two. All right, enough from me here. 
Council Member Diana Ayala. How are you? I am well. I am well. Thank you for having me. Uh, really appreciate you joining me. We're talking here the day before Thanksgiving. Many people will probably be listening to this after Thanksgiving, but thanks for making the time. Um, so s- introduce yourself a little bit, uh, who you are, where you come from, and you know maybe a little bit about as you're coming to the end of your, your first term here in the council, a little bit about what you're most proud of having done here in this, in this term. Yeah. So, you know, um, again, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, really excited. Uh, hopefully, very uh, families will have an opportunity to hear this after uh, the holiday, and I hope it's a safe one for everyone. Um, but I'm, you know, Councilmember Diana Ayala. I am of uh, Puerto Rican descent. Was born in Puerto Rico. Came to New York City when I was uh, five uh, years old. I have had many, many, many experiences. My family has been uh, homeless uh, twice. Uh, I have. Uh, lost family members uh, to gun violence. I dropped out of uh, high school with a teenage parent um, and kind of, you know, coincidentally found myself at the age of 20 living alone uh, in the in the South Bronx with no education, with two small children um, and, and really kind of having to reinvent myself and dedicated myself to, you know, going to night school, got my high school diploma, was able to then enroll uh, in, in, in college. Uh, majoring in human services because I'm very uh, social services uh, oriented. And then um, by accident kind of ended up here in East Harlem where um, I was working in the senior center, in the local, one of the local senior centers that was under the umbrella of uh, Casita Maria uh, back then. Um, And I did that work for maybe close to like nine years before I met uh, my predecessor, Melissa Mark Viverito who happened to have a position available uh, at her office. She was newly elected, maybe 10 months in, and needed someone to run the constituent services division. Um, I was you know, asked if I would want to uh, apply. Uh, her staff and I had had an opportunity to work on a couple of other community uh, projects together, and they were really impressed with uh, my uh, ability to really understand the issues locally and my connection to the community. And so not really knowing what I was going to getting into, I was not, you know, uh, politically savvy. I didn't even realize that I didn't know at the time, right, who my elected representatives were. I was primarily trying to raise a family, uh, put a roof, you know, pay for rent and food and uh, and ensure that my kids were were okay. As many, you know, families do. Um, The last thing that I was interested was in local politics. And um, but I took a leap of faith and I, I came into the office and worked my way up. I did. I was the director of constituent services, the director of senior services. I then started doing a lot of advocacy work and really uh, organizing tenants in the um, uh, in the heat of the uh, mass wave of gentrification that hit East Harlem uh, and the South Bronx. Um, work that I really loved and I had never really anticipated or visualized myself doing, and I found myself kind of falling in love with. Um, and Melissa then, you know, uh, became speaker. Uh, two years before she left, she said, you know, I think we should have a conversation. I think you should run. I think you would make a, you know, a wonderful council member. You have a lot of love for this community. You have a lot of love for the people. Uh, but most importantly, you really, truly understand the issues. And so, um, you know, I, I considered that very heavily. 
um, you know, uh, consulted with members of the community, with my family and um, and decided to run. And I am I'm so happy that I did that because I think that for many women, um, it usually takes somebody kind of nudging you, right? And validating you as an individual, um, which is, you know, is a shame, right? That that that's what it takes, but is 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 it is the truth, and I think that that you know we need to speak about that uh, more openly, right? Is uh, why why the reluctance? We bring a lot of value. I feel like I bring a lot of value, um, but it's you know it was difficult to kind of recognize that then. So I am very uh, appreciative to her and to others for recognizing that leadership potential in me. Um, and I'll just note that was that was before the the last election cycle and the and. There was a relatively small number of women in the council, and now there's going to be a, a women majority in the council, to your point That's about, right. you know, the organized effort that Melissa Mark Viverito also helped lead to to push for more women to be running for council and in the council. And that's paid uh, immense dividends for that that effort. Um, and also, I'll note you. You won a very tough primary uh, in 2017 over a sitting assembly member, which was was, uh, you know, an upset to many. Uh, but anyway, go ahead about your uh, about your tenure. Yeah, it wasn't an upset to me, but yeah, it was. Yes, of course. Yeah. But, a, but to beat a sitting elected official is a is a big, <laughs> you know, a lot. Most of most of the sitting elected officials who try to switch, uh, you know, legislative bodies usually win. So that was a. Yeah, but I, I believe I also believe it was like it was a reflection, really, right, of my commitment to this community and the years that I had invested in really, you know, in working and ensuring that we were bringing equity, that we were bringing in resources, and um, and I did that, you know, uh, really, you know, with with no intention of ever running to a public office, and I think that that's important, right? The constituent services aspect of the work that we do is really important uh, to the local community, right? They want to know that you're going to show up. They want they want to know that they're going to be prioritized, and I think that because I had. Uh, so much familiarity that was very helpful to me um, in that election. And I received a lot of support. Uh, it was a very humbling um, experience. But again, I'm, I'm really happy to be here because, you know, this is one of the reasons why I'm running for speakers. I really do believe, right, that, that women, all women, right, we deserve a seat at the table. And, um, you know, the city has been managed, you know, primarily from the lens of, you know, of many, many men, um, educated men, great men, you know, uh, smart and talented, talented men. But, you know, women make up over 50 percent of the population in New York City. We're mothers, educators, you know, we're nurses, we're elected officials, we're caregivers and much more. And um, and that 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 I think, you know, uh, needs to be acknowledged and it needs to be respected. Um, and I think that it entitles us to at least a seat at the table. Um, so I'm excited about, you know, about being in the speaker's race. Um, I think in the last four years, you know, my district has been very, uh, you know, challenging. We, we, I represent one of the poorest congressional districts, the two borough districts, East Harlem and the South Bronx. Uh, we've been hit very heavily by uh, the gun violence uh, epidemic. We've been hit very heavily by the opioid crisis. We were hit uh, very heavily uh, by the COVID uh, pandemic with some of the highest rates of infections and uh, and deaths, uh, you know, in some of my zip codes as well. We have food insecurity issues, housing insecurity uh, problems as well. And 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 so I've spent a lot of time really doing a lot of that work and helping that work kind of inform some of, some of the, the the policies that um, that I've helped kind of champion. But uh, primarily, I've been focusing a lot of my attention in the last four years on mental health issues. Um, 
you know, my mother, my brother, and my sister all suffer from um, bipolar disorder. And I, I speak about this very openly because I think it's important. Um, and, you know, those experiences were really eye-opening to me uh, in terms of the deficiencies in government and how we provide services to uh, to individuals with mental illness, uh, how difficult it is to access mental health care in your own community. And so um, I've been a very loud and robust voice in that conversation. Um, I'm also very dismayed by, you know, uh, the lack of attention until most recently on the opioid crisis. Um, I believe that, you know, the numbers are pretty, you know, alarming um, in terms of the number of people that have died unnecessarily in the last two years, because in the midst of the pandemic, uh, most of our uh, harm reduction programs were closed to the public. Um, and with many individuals really uh, unable to access care because they you know, had no address, they were living under the Metro North, right? They had no, uh, no phone, uh, no, you know, no, no phone to call. And, uh, you know, we're sleeping, you know, in the streets. So, you know, those are, are issues that for me um, have kind of highlighted a lot of, you know, the, 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 the attention, right, that I have given, the, the work that I've been um, primarily focused on. Obviously, the Close Rikers campaign, I was also very heavily involved in. Um, let, me, let me ask you about two things you just mentioned. Um, yeah. uh, one, on mental health services and, and oversight work at the council. There's been so much controversy attention on the Thrive NYC program from the city. The mayor, uh, de Blasio and first lady Shirley McRae have recently done some rebranding and some expansion of services and launched some new, um, you know, more comprehensive services and a website and and some various things, but there's been a, a lot of controversy around this program, obviously for a long time, there's been some council oversight hearings, um, on it over, over time, where we are now, I don't want to. I don't want to get into all the you know details of this program and and its its flaws and and how they approached it and and other things. But where we are now, how do you sort of assess where the city's at now in furthering this mission of making sure that mental health services are more available to people who really need them? Uh, in terms of uh, providing mental health services to the people with the most severe mental illnesses. Um, you know, where are we at and, and what needs to be sort of uh, done away with, tightened up, accelerated? You know, wh- where are we at now? What's what's next, in your opinion? Well, you know, first of all, I, I really want to I want to say that the first lady deserves a lot more credit than she gets. I think that most people were not talking about mental health in the way that we've been talking about mental health. Um you know, after Thrive was kind of launched, whether it's been good or bad or indifferent, we've, we've been talking about it. And I think that that is really important. That is the, a very necessary first step in acknowledging that we have issues. There are significant deficiencies in the way that we distribute, you know, resources or that resources are available in communities of color. And I think that she has been, you know, a very strong advocate for the same reasons that many of us are, right? Because we've had family members that have been impacted and we, we're just trying to kind of figure it out as well and trying to figure out how we can be helpful. Um, I know a lot of the controversy was really, I think, because there 
was a, you know, a feeling that the administration kind of had, you know, was was funding for, you know, all of this, the, the furniture without having purchased the house. And I think that they've kind of worked through that, right? They uh, have now established the, the Office of the Community Mental Health. Um, but you can't take away from the fact that a lot of the programs that were funded through with those dollars, those public dollars were programs in our own communities, right? Geriatric mental health, um, was a really big one for me. Um, there are, you know, programs that are doing really, really good work and we can't, you know, we have to be very careful when we are dissecting um, the Thrive uh, program and, and and highlighting its accomplishments or where, you know, we could have done better in not really hurting those institutions that have been a part of our communities for many, many uh, years that, you know, were providing enhanced services as a result of these additional public dollars. You know, it's interesting you hear uh, when I've spoken with um, nonprofits and, and providers and we've even published, I think, one or two op-eds at Gotham Gazette from them. You know, there there is there are people in places out there who credit, you know, the mayor and the first lady and Thrive NYC for getting more resources for, as you said, talking about um, these issues more, you know, destigmatizing mental health issues. Obviously, there were also some really big gaps in terms of how they were managing the program, how they were measuring their impact, you know, things of that nature. But I also think perhaps one of the biggest problems, it seems, was that they didn't seem to be giving the requisite focus on people with the most severe mental illnesses. Um, And there were often questions about, okay, what are you doing for this population who are very often winding up in jail? Uh, or in homeless shelters, as you know very well, and so I think I, I think there's a lot that we can do locally as mm-hmm. a you know as a city, right? In terms of how we are providing mental health services to uh, the incarcerated, how are we interacting with those individuals when they get you know uh, when they when they first come in contact right with the NYPD, so that it doesn't lead to an arrest that eventually leads to incarceration? Because you know we know a lot of these people don't need to be incarcerated; they need to be treated. The difficulty here is that the state, you know, uh, there are laws that prevent you know a person from being held involuntarily. And so uh, if an individual is in emotional distress and is picked up and taken to the hospital for that care, once they get to the hospital, if they were assuming that they were manic at the moment and now they've kind of come down, if they're not posing a threat, a public threat to themselves or to anyone else, then they can be released. Right. And so it kind of, you know, it's very it's a very, very, very complicated uh, conversation to have because, I think that, you know, our hands are kind of tied, you know, to some degree, but there's a reason for why these laws exist, right? We had individuals right. that were, you know, institutionalized for many years unnecessarily, um, you know. Uh, do you agree? Do you agree with, um, I, I heard Eric Adams, the morning uh, we're having this conversation earlier today, just the latest example where he and others say that, you know, judges should be exercising their discretion using Kendra's law more often to the to the issue, the very issue you're speaking about, about can people be um, be held for treatment um, or mandated into certain programming? Do you think um, things like Kendra's law should be used more? Do you think there's, you know, steps that should be taken by? Go ahead. 
I do. I do. But I also think that, you know, there's no there's no um, there's no alarm that's wrong. Right. If an individual is, uh, you know, is pushing somebody or, you know, hurt someone or, isn't, you know, is, is acting erratically and they get picked up and they end up in court. Like there's no there's no bell that is wrong that says, OK, listen, this, in, this individual has been, you know, through this uh, judicial system before um, and has been flagged as a person. Right. That has been di- has a mental health diagnosis. Um, there should be a different level of interaction with that person. There's no, there's no bell to be that, 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 that has ever been wrong. And I think that that's, you know, uh, that's problematic. That is, you know, seriously problematic. So I do agree w- with what the uh, incoming mayor is saying. I do believe that we have not exercised our right to utilize Kendra's law effectively. Um, and it's a disservice not only to the community, but to the individuals that are suffering from serious mental illness that are left on the street because these are somebody's children that are sleeping out, you know, in very in inclement weather that also feel threatened and that, you know, quite frankly, for the most part, are usually on the receiving end of violence. And that, you know, we need to recognize that mm-hmm. we are failing this community. When you have, um, in preparation for this discussion, I was looking back at some of our coverage at Gotham Gazette of some council hearings and about these discussions around uh, mental illness and incarceration and um, when you have these extremely high percentages of people who are in city jails who are suffering from serious mental mental illness um, and they're often getting better health care mental health care uh, in jail than they do out of jail yeah. there's something seriously broken uh, yeah. and, and so I'm curious just at this point if you think, there are fixes, you know, that city government, state government, you know, are there are there governmental fixes to this problem that need to be addressed in the coming months and years that you haven't seen action on? I think that we need to do a better job of connecting, you know, uh, those those people that are already justice involved or, in, you know, serving time at Rikers uh, with the the uh, with with the necessary uh services before they're released. I think that there's an expectation that they'll be released and there's a, you know, a referral made and no real follow through, right, on whether or not the, the person, um, you know, got access to their medication or even, you know, uh, had assistance, you know, applying for Medicaid. I mean, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll tell you because this is my, you know, my mission in life because I, I go through this every single day with my brother um, who suffers from serious mental illness and he, uh, you know, was in a program and, you know, we put him in, first of all, when he was in Rikers, um, and he's been in Rikers many times, unfortunately, um, you know, he was not in a unit that was necessarily servicing him in that way um, mm-hmm. because he felt it was too institutional. So I think that there has to be a way that, you know, I mean, in those instances where, where we cannot avoid a person being incarcerated, that we're housing them appropriately in a setting that, you know, they, where they don't feel isolated, um, but, but they're getting the services that they need. And then secondly, when once they're released, you know, out into uh, society, they ha- again, we have to start building those relationships prior um, to discharge because oftentimes they don't they, they don't make it, you know, to those appointments. Um, they are required and expected to fill out their own applications, to make their own appointments, to show up. And many of them, quite frankly, just don't have the mental capacity to do that. And to me, that's the equivalent of asking a child, um, right, to to follow uh, through with the necessary steps to get access to care. I think that, you know, unfortunately, they do require right a little bit more handholding. Um, and our system is just not really prepared to do that. Mm. Um, we could we could spend hours on this, but oh let's God. let's move to a couple other subjects. Um 
You mentioned the closed Rikers campaign, uh, the building of the new borough-based jails. One of those jails is set to be in your district in Mahaven. What's your, uh, I've heard the mayor-elect, as you have, I'm sure, raise some questions because there were Bronx officials, some of whom uh, endorsed Eric Adams for mayor, who raised questions about the siting of that jail originally. Um, He's raised questions about that. This is gone through the land use process. It's moving ahead. There was just a hearing the other day that said, you know, it is moving ahead, the the four jails that are going to be built. Um, from your perspective, where's this at? Is there anything changing in your mind in the in the months and years ahead? Or is this just, let's just stick to the plan and keep going? Well, no, listen, I want to be very clear. I support the Close Rikers, you know, movement. Um, and I did not wake up one day and say, hey, you know what? It would be a great idea to house a jail in my district. That never happened, right? I was approached. Uh, I think that the city was trying their best to meet the Littman um, Commission's recommendations on siting. Um, it became very difficult to identify a location in a, you know, that was uh, big enough within the courts, uh, the, 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 the courthouse um, on 161st Street, which would have been the ideal um, space to, to house this this facility, which I agree with wholeheartedly. So for me, it was never an issue of it has to go in my district. I don't really care where it goes, but it needs to go somewhere. And I think that we cannot, right, uh, you know, we we cannot say that we're foreclosing Rikers, but then say, oh, but, you know, I want to close it, but not in my backyard, right? Um, That's not who I am. And, you know, um, I, as long as, you know, I think we did, we had a comprehend a lot of uh, comprehensive conversations with the local community and, you know, I get it, I get it, right? This is a very difficult pill to swallow, but I think that, you know, there's a larger, uh, uh, you know, bigger picture here. And I think that this has the potential to be, you know, to do a lot of good um, in terms of reducing recidivism and keeping families connected and ensuring that people have equal access to healthcare, mental health care, you know, well, you name it. I mean, there, there are so many benefits to it. So, you know, if they find a better location, I am also supportive of that. Um, but it has to go somewhere. But it, it sounded like you you weren't going to leave any opening there, but then you just did. I mean, you know, this whole thing went through a land use process, as you well know, obviously, the, the sightings were approved. Changing the changing the sighting would be an enormous undertaking that would open this whole thing back yeah, up. I, I mean, I don't think I don't think that they I don't think that they would you know subject themselves to that. And I don't I just don't think that you know we we they, again there was a very extensive you know uh, process to identify uh, other alternative locations and it did not work out right. And my my um, position on it was like put it wherever you want to put it right. Um, but if we don't find a location, then it's going where it's going because we cannot risk not closing Rikers. Uh, And so that's my position. I think that, you know, I I would find it very highly unlikely that we're going to be, um, I, you know, moving sites, um, considering that the clock has already started and, you know, you know, we're moving along um, with the uh, original uh, planning process in mind. Uh, But, you know, things, listen, things, weirder things have happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and, you know, all I say is that, again, my intention was never to house it in my district, but rather acknowledge that we needed to house it somewhere. And it was that was the closest uh, location that was the closest to the, the courthouse that met all of the other uh, requisitions of being in city owned property within mm-hmm. walking distance of public transportation. And so, you know, 
Mm-hmm. We, we ended up where we ended up and, you know, I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, yeah, I, I, no, I, I think if the local council member who's going to be there is not pushing for change, you know, that that's, <laughs> that's very different than if, if you were, um, uh, the East Harlem rezoning, uh, this was moved, uh, ahead under your predecessor, who you mentioned, uh, Melissa Mark Riverito, who was a speaker of the council working with the de Blasio administration. How is that going from your point of view? Um, you know, where does sort of the city's commitments and, you know, as you look back on the process, um, you know, anything that's sticking out to you, good, bad, or otherwise that, you know, you've, you've been reflecting on here as this term comes to an end and, and the process has been moving ahead. And you've also been voting in the council on some of these other rezonings, like in Gowanus that you just voted on and the Soho one is coming up, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, it was one of the first rezonings. I think that, you know, obviously, um, you know, the, the negotiations have, uh, advanced significantly since our rezoning and uh, members have been able able to leverage, um, you know, a lot for the, their individual districts, which, you know, I'm, I'm happy about. In terms of how it's going for East Harlem, I think that, you know, it's going better than expected. I, I think that when people hear the word rezoning, they automatically assume uh, displacement. And, um, and I think that in this case, uh, we were very purposeful in terms of the locations that were being upzoned. Uh, for instance, on Third Avenue, uh, between 107th and 110th Street, we have a number of buildings that are owned by the same family. They've been warehoused for many, many years. They, they you know, paid for. Uh, they have commercial tenants, and there's no plan, you know, to really do anything with the properties in the immediate future. Um, those those buildings were already uh, upzoned under Councilmember Reed uh, for up to 12 stories. And so potentially, right, those the this this owner could come back and say, well, you know what, I'm going to redevelop this entire row of buildings into co-ops um, by upzoning through, you know, the MIH option obviously kicks in and ensures that uh, obligates the developer uh, to develop to to create units of housing uh, that are more affordable to the local community. I thought that was genius. I I really did. Um, we also were very careful to ensure that we were putting in measures to protect existing tenants. Uh, there's a lot of worker, you know, education, uh, a huge worker educate uh, tenant education component to this. We we have a tenant protection unit that works out of our office. Um, that is out there knocking on doors. And we really, I, I have to be honest that at, at least in our case, um, the number of people that were being displaced prior to the rezoning has significantly slowed down. I don't know if that's because the market was kind of iffy for a little while. I don't know if it's really because of all of these efforts to really help inform residents. But, um, you know, I think that, you know, it doesn't hurt, right? Well, um, to have those, those services in place. And I think that for us, uh, you know, it hasn't, you know, the, the rezoning hasn't been a negative. Uh, mm, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, there, I mean, there's so many pieces to it, but it's interesting when you, when you talk about outreach and services, there's obviously, um, you know, many tenant legal protections that have been put into place and the, um, you know, the right to counsel law and, and various things that, um, you know, it's it, this, this debate over, um, you know, doing nothing when there's serious gentrification pressures on a on a community versus you know trying to do something to to leverage some of that and create more housing that will include affordable housing. You know, this debate is obviously 
very interesting, very, very fraught and, and continuing here as we look ahead to um, the final weeks of, of this council and, um, and into the next. And, you know, Eric Adams has, has talked about looking to, to rezone and upzone wealthier communities uh, to add affordable housing. I'm wondering, um, we just saw the council approve this blood center rezoning, and that's obviously a very different type of project than a neighborhood rezoning. So stipulating that, it was an instance, however, where the council did decide to override what's typically referred to as member deference. The local council member, Ben Kalos, was not in favor of the final uh, negotiation, but the council voted over his objections. Is that a harbinger at all of things to come, do you think, or is it a very unique situation? Do you think in the next council there would be more instances than we've seen? I mean, this was the first one in over a decade um, of, of sort of over overriding. Do you think this is a harbinger of things to come or a one-off? It's really, I think it's a one-off, but I think it's interesting because we all have the discretion to vote down any any project, right? It's not uncommon for council members to take a position in opposition of the local member. Like it happens every single day. It doesn't happen in unison, like the entire body, right? Is very, uh, very rarely comes to uh, to the to a conclusion that we have to override a member. Um, and it's unfortunate, but I, I don't see, I think that there's a lot of uh, respect and, uh, you know, and member deference and, and, and understanding, right? That it's, it's all also important because the local members understand and know their districts better than anyone. Um, so we shouldn't be discounting them, but I think it's also uh, an opportunity to really reflect on, right, um, and, and allow all of us, right, myself included, um, to to learn a little bit more about, not learn a little bit, but to come to the realization that I, I should not have final say, right, in, in in matters that impact the entire city, in matters of the you know development projects that 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 ha- that can do a greater good, right? Um, and you know the irony in all of this is that if you ask anyone on the the BLAC, uh, you know we would have gladly taken this project on. Like I would have, you know, I, 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 I would have found the land uh, mm-hmm. to develop mm-hmm. it. So um, it's, it's very unfortunate that we, we had to get there, but I don't, I don't foresee a future in the, in the body where we're not no longer deferring to the local member. But I think, you know, again, I mean, everybody has to be on notice, me included, right? It, it, there's, there are projects that are a little bit more sensitive than, than not. And they're there, you know, this, this could potentially happen again. Mm-hmm. Interesting. All right. I don't want to keep you too long. Um, let's talk a little bit about whether you're going to lead the, the body uh, over the next coming years. Um, what When you talk uh, to your co- current colleagues and your future colleagues, um, there's dozens of new members coming into the council along with you returners, uh, several of the returners, of course, running for city council speaker. When you talk to those colleagues and future colleagues, what's your sort of boiled down message as to why you should be the speaker? Um, several things, right? The fact that we have no Latino representation in the city, uh, in citywide positions is important to me. Uh, secondly, there are no, no women in citywide positions. That's important to me. But most importantly is the fact that we uh, lack uh, leadership that is kind of in tune with the issues that impact uh, you know, communities of color in the way that I do. I think that my colleagues are great. They're exceptional uh, people and would, you know, in their own right, you know, uh, bring they, they all have 
have great qualities that will make them phenomenal speakers. I think that I am very unique in my personal experiences. Again, you know, I've been, you know, I've suffered from homelessness, you know, food insecurity. Um, uh, you know, I, I know what it's like to be on the verge of eviction. I, you know, I, um, I, I come with a different perspective, right, on the issues that matter the most uh, to my constituency, workforce development, you know, uh, job security. Um, and, and I think that that is important, that that level of experience is important because we, you know, people like myself are, you know, I, I'm a, I consider myself a very social services uh, driven member, um, we understand the nuances in government because those have been our lived experiences. We didn't read about it. We didn't hear about it. We don't just sympathize, right? We understand it very intimately because it's been our experiences. Uh, the COVID pandemic was very frustrating for me um, you know, many of my, you know, I, I have large pockets of, of severe poverty that were created by administrators in this city. And yet they, there is no mechanism to identify where ex they exist. And so food wasn't even getting to some of these locations uh, quickly enough. That was so heartbreaking, but yet so infuriating because, you know, as a person of color, um, it offends me that we are not as uh, intentional um, in getting resources with the immediacy that it, that it mandates um, in, in cases of emergency. We are ill-prepared. And I think that because, you know, we prioritize a lot of times, right, all of these, you know, fancy developments and all of these fancy projects, um, but we forget about the dilapidated housing that exists now. We forget about, you know, the food insecurity issues that exist now. We forget that, you know, 90% uh, of our constituency makes up the essential workforce and they're working in conditions that are, you know, intolerable. Um, those are the things that matter to me. Um, I, I envision myself as a leader that is going to be very working very closely with um, the new members. Really, really excited about the new class of, of, of incoming members. We have a lot of really uh, great new talent, a lot of wonderful new ideas, um, just really great energy. Um, so I, I really don't and I have been very careful not to create my own platform or agenda, um, because I think that it would be irresponsible to do that without really having uh, more robust conversations with the incoming members about what their priorities are as well. Mm -hmm. And in terms of how this um, this really complicated race, which, as I said in the intro, is voted on by the council members come January, but there's a lot of different players on the field besides the 51 members of the council. Um, in terms of how it's going, how do you find it going for yourself? Um, you obviously, uh, I saw in city and state, council member elect Althea Stevens is, is supporting you. She called you, you her mentor. Um, it seems like former council speaker, Melissa Martin Viverito, who's your predecessor in your council district there is, is behind you. Um, Representative uh, Adriana Aspiat told city and state that um, you're his preferred pick. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong on any of that or if there's things to add on that, but how is how's the sort of race going in terms of the the politics of it? Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I'm not complaining. I'm very lucky. I, I've had a lot of support um, from, you know, all of the individuals that you've mentioned. And we have a nice uh, block of, of commitments, you know, to date, uh, which is really exciting. Um, you know, I think that, you know, I, I'm, I'm always grateful, right? Um, and sometimes a little bit surprised, right, by the level of support. But I think that, you know, I don't want anything out of this. I really want to leave my city, this city, uh, a better place. Uh, we have a lot of issues. We're 
coming out of a you know post uh, COVID pandemic that you know truly um, is gonna it's gonna leave very right, uh, lasting impressions on on all of us for many many more years. And I would love to be able to kind of take my dig at it um, from you know from a more social services uh, censored uh, you know perspective. And I think that you know, when I speak to new members that they they feel the same, right? And I feel like they feel heard and they feel seen. Um, and that's important to me because representation matters. When you say you have a, a, a number of commitments, can you can you put a number on that at this point? It's uh, November 24th yeah. when we're speaking yeah. here. So things change, yeah. but... Yeah, I mean, I, I always I joke about it that as, as being kind of like a game of spades. But, I, you know, we have a block of about seven or eight members uh, to date that are, you know, uh, hard commitments. And then, you know, several others who have uh, expressed an interest in, you know, uh, in, in supporting as well that are kind of trying to figure out how to, you know, work through some of their own internal politics. And have others besides Councilmember Lick Stevens said that you could you could say the names of those who are who are supporting you, who are those commitments? Um, yes and no, but I, 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 you know, I mean, they have, they've, they've public, you know, they've gone out and they've, you know, they've expressed to others to, you know, some of the unions and, uh, who they are. I don't, I don't feel comfortable because I haven't asked them and I don't want to, you know, step on any toes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's no secret. I mean, they've, they've, they've been out, you know, um, kind of, uh, talking to others about me as well, but I, 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 I love out the, uh, Stevens. I think that she's, okay. uh, She's so she's 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 so great. She's awesome, and she's very you know, uh, very much a you know one in a one in a lifetime right situation. It's very unusual to be that bold and that direct, um, especially when you're a first time uh, member. <laughs> I love it. And lastly, let me ask you um, the relationship with Mayor Elect Adams. How do you how are you thinking about that? You know, are you pitching to um, council members? Uh, and, and council members elect that you, you know, would lead the body as, uh, you know, a really good partner with him or as a check or, you know, are there ways that you're sort of thinking about if you were the speaker and pitching, if you were the speaker, how you line up and you want the council to line up with the new mayor? I mean, yes and no. I mean, listen, I consider myself a very pragmatic and fair individual. Um, however, I push back when I need to. I try to be, you know, uh, respectful. Uh, and I think that, you know, for the members, it's important uh, that we maintain a level, right? We, we're, we are, we're the check and balance uh, for the admin. And that need that 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 needs to be protected at all times, right? Uh, but we all look forward, you know, to, uh, you know, working relationship with uh, with the new administration. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm excited about what that means. I think that the mayor-elect uh, and I have a lot of, you know, things in common, right, in terms of our own personal uh, stories and our upbringings. And I'm very, you know, excited to see what that, you know, what that translates in, uh, into in terms of his policy work. Uh, but, you know, obviously we're here to work. We're here to get things done. Um, and, you know, we will do that, you know, uh, as, as, as kindly as possible um, and as professional as possible. But, you know, there is no there shouldn't be any misunderstanding that when we need to push back as a body, we will be pushing back. All right, Diana Ayala, thank you for the time. It was good catching up with you, hearing about uh, the government work and also the, the speaker race. And uh, and we'll stay in touch. Um, we're again, we're talking right here before Thanksgiving. So have a good holiday and uh, and we'll be in touch. 
Same to you. Thank you so much.